37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? I'm just dropping in real quick to leave a special message about this episode because the episode itself is special as well. So it turns out that Presto and I are taking the week off from recording because I've been overnights working third shift for about four days off and on, and I don't even know what year it is, let alone what day of the week it is. And Presto, as it turns out, is actually setting up a bunch of really cool new hardware he's got for the show down in his studio. So with that, we thought we'd take the week off. But we hate to leave y'all empty-handed, especially you, Scott, old buddy boy. So what we decided to do is, in honor of National Alien Day being yesterday, we thought we would drop an episode of the old 13 Nightmares podcast that we had started several years ago as kind of a sister podcast to Pixelated Paranormal. What 13 Nightmares was, was a movie review podcast where Steven, myself, and our buddy Brady would get together bi-weekly or <laughs> once a month and review and deep dive into some of the most classic horror movies that we're huge fans of. And I think somewhere around episode two of that show, we had actually dived really deep into the original 1979 Alien, a.k.a. Jaws in space. Well, since we decided to take the week off, I thought it might be kind of fun to throw that old episode up here for you guys to give a listen. That way you didn't have to go a week without something to put into your ear holes. And if you like it, I might have some good news because it actually sounds like Brady is extremely interested in resurrecting 13 Nightmares and trying to get back to doing that show again, which I would absolutely love, and I'm sure Steven would be on board for as well. So hopefully we'll get back to that. It definitely was a, a labor of love that we all enjoyed doing, and who knows, it might just see that thing crawl itself out of the graveyard and go back onto a brand new podcast channel of its own. So we'll have more news on that later. But for now, I want you guys to sit back and enjoy this deep dive into the 1979 sci-fi thriller classic, Alien. And then we'll catch y'all next week for our regularly scheduled show. Welcome to 13 Nightmares. After a space merchant vessel perceives an unknown transmission as a distress call, it lands on the source moon, finding one of the crew members attacked by a mysterious life form, and they soon realize that the creature's life cycle 
has merely begun, while theirs may soon end. Join 13 Nightmares as we dive face-hugger first into what many folks consider a masterpiece of science fiction and horror. In space, no one can hear you scream. Hey everybody, we're back with another episode of your favorite horror podcast. My name is Brady and I'll be your host for tonight's Romp Through Space. Joining me tonight are the usual suspects, Seanster the Monster. I'm still not sure if I like that nickname or not. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Oh. And also the infamous noise under your bed, Big Steven. <laughs> awesome. What's up, everybody? Sorry I couldn't make it the last Be Real, but I appreciate all the love and support. And you guys did an awesome job on that. So awesome. Hey, thanks. I just have to say that I am so thrilled to be here that my chest could just burst. <laughs> When we last left you, we discussed the return of the living dead, but tonight we're headed to the further reaches of space to discuss my personal favorite movie, not just of horror, but of all time. Tonight's film was directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon, whose name you may recognize because he also wrote The Return of the Living Dead. And if you guys didn't know already, this is the Alien episode that only took, what, an extra month to put out? <laughs> only. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it's here, and we, like life, we uh, found a way. Yeah, so Dan O'Bannon was a pretty interesting guy, and he really grew up in the perfect time to find a lot of inspiring pop culture to lay the seeds for his future cinema career. Uh, he loved to read, especially science fiction. His dad owned a curio shop, and one time Dan actually helped his dad fake a UFO landing. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That has to be like the coolest like dad story. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> like, sure. Oh, me and my dad used to take awesome train rides. Oh, yeah. Well, me and my dad faked the UFO landing, so no big deal, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Although one time my dad, I, I he saw me sneaking out a can of shaving cream, and he's like, hey, what are you doing with my shaving cream? And I said, oh, sorry. We're going to have a shaving cream prank at work back when I worked at Pizza Hut. And he's like, son, get back here. You ain't doing that. And I said, oh, okay. And then he grabs like an aerosol nozzle off of a can of like hairspray. And he pops off the regular nozzle from the shaving cream, puts the aerosol. Oh my gosh. And then shows me how you can get like a six to 10 foot arc of shaving cream by switching the nozzles out. Wow. And he's like, yeah, we used to do this back when I was in basic training. And wow. then he patted me on the back and told me to go to work. He like went there and Sean went there, went, went to work and he just had like the ultimate arsenal. He's like, look, right. I'm the captain now. <laughs> he also loved H.P. Lovecraft and the story called At the Mountains of Madness, which is about a group of researchers that find this underground city with these fossilized mummies uh, of these really strange alien creatures that soon come back to life and attack the researchers, much like the astronauts of the Nostromo and the structure they discovered with the Prometheans and the facehuggers. So you can kind of see where some of this inspiration already came from. So this amazing movie had a budget of estimated $11 million. Opening weekend in the U.S. of A, $3 million roughly, and May 28, 1979. The gross, though, made $81 million. Dollars, which is pretty, which is, and then worldwide, 108 uh, million. But it's pretty cool to see that, like, the opening weekend didn't seem like a lot of people were kind of gonna dig it. But then, over the word mm -hmm. of mouth, clearly, it rose, yeah. it rose, yeah. rose to the, rose to the top. That's what a hundred percent return on your investment, right? 
Uh, I mean, well, I would say it's like what one thousand percent. Is it one thousand? I suck at statistics. Yeah, because hundred percent would be just making back the amount that you spent. I don't basically. I, I don't math. <laughs> so. Steve's not a big profit yeah. and loss guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you you could say they made ten times that amount. I always yeah. find budgets really interesting, especially comparing opening weekend to the overall gross of a movie. It's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Because a lot of times in these movies, people don't consider movies to be successes unless they make back at least the initial budget, mm-hmm. you know, for the first weekend these days. So I mean back then <laughs> Thank God they didn't pull it out of theaters, you know, considered a big loss because, you know, to today's standards, three million is not really that much money. Mm-hmm. But back then, I'm sure they were happy just to make that, you know, it was a huge gamble. So, What started as a 29-page script titled Memory, Dan O'Bannon used to lay the groundwork for the opening scenes to one of the greatest sci-fi horror films to ever be put to a screen. But before it became the movie that we all know and love today, those mere 29 pages went through many changes. Not only in revisions, but also with other artistic influences. Previously, O'Bannon had accepted an offer to go work on Alejandro Jodorowsky's adaptation of Dune, which would take him to Paris for six months. The movie Dune fell apart. However, fortunately for all of us during this time, Dan had met Chris Foss, H.R. Giger, and Jean Mobius Gerard. After leaving Paris, O'Bannon moved back to L.A. and lived with screenwriter Ronald Chusett, who also wrote Total Recall. And together, these two began reviving O'Bannon's script for his project titled Memory. And what's interesting, too, here is that Dan actually asked for Shusett's help because he felt he couldn't find a way to break past the 29th or 30th page of the Memory script. So he actually trusted Shusett to kind of help him get over that writer's block and figure out where exactly it should go. Teamwork. Fuck yeah. Well, and sometimes <laughs> even, you know, like when we're writing these, you know, I like to have Sean and Steve go over, you know, our notes and make sure that it's, you know, a cohesive story. Well, for sure. And it shows a lot of faith in your partners, you know, that you're working with too, to essentially hand over your baby and be like, here, I trust you with this. Just don't break it. <laughs> yeah. So also the original title would go on to be changed to Star Beast. That's such a ridiculous name. Sounds <laughs> really like some does. shitty 80s metal band. It, it probably was, <laughs> yeah, right. to be fair. Yeah, true. Just lots of, lots of Aquanet and just lots of cocaine. But oddly enough, during revisions of the newly named script, the word alien appeared numerous times. So after some more discussion, both O'Bannon and Shusett knew there was something simple yet eye-catching about the word alien. And they knew they had found an ultimate title for their film. With most of the plot in place, Shusett and O'Bannon presented their script to several studios, pitching it was Jaws in Space. <laughs> which is awesome. And eventually they signed a deal with a company called Brandywine, which had its ties to 20th Century Fox. Well, you always have to take a movie or a game and compare it to something yeah. else, you know, if you think your thing is supposed to be new. But to a degree, yeah. this is Jaws in Space. <laughs> so, oh, very much so, very yeah. Much so. yeah. Oh, yeah. When Jaws was such a successful film, mm-hmm. you know, it, Oh, for sure, for sure. And that's, hell, that's one way to get your movie, you know, blessed and green-lighted is to be like, oh, you like Jaws? Well, it's just like Jaws, but in space. What? Space Jaws? We gotta see this. So right out of the gate, the music instantly takes us to a place that's unfamiliar and unsettling, and the opening title animation might be one of my favorite of all time because it's just so, you know, eerie and wonderful. It's a system of seemingly, you know, uniform geographic shapes slowly revealing themselves one by one until they spell out the word alien. 
I was going to say, which is crazy because that's kind of how Total Recall starts out too with with uh, their opening credit for the movie. Oh, really? It does some kind of like thing like that where the word is kind of like, you know, just lines and then it turns slowly with <laughs> the badass music synthesizers in the background. Oh, yeah. Right. It's been a while since I've Choice. seen that. So maybe I should revisit that. Yeah, me too. Well, and that that way of kind of introducing your title is alien in itself mm-hmm. because you're like, oh, are these hieroglyphs or what are they? And then, you know, it un- unfolds. Yeah. So and the awesome. font that they yeah. chose for alien is just tight to the way it's spaced. Just so it's perfect. It's so rad, man. So, O'Bannon had a love for like Egyptian like history, too. So and I guess what you if you look at that, the the title is kind of shaped in that triangle because your A and your N both, you know, kind of lean upwards and inwards. So, yep. Look at that. Well, as soon as the animation's over for the title, we are instantly thrust into a state of mild unrest before we've even stepped one foot on the spacecraft. So we open the movie with the Nostromo, an M-Class Lockmart CM-88B Bison Starfighter, traveling back to Earth carrying 20 million tons of raw ore. Now what's really great here is that during the first 10 minutes of the opening scene, the ship itself is almost seemingly alive. From the little blue kitschy birds that are tipping back and forth, you know, drinking the water on that table, uh, the computers begin chirping back and forth, sending code almost like they themselves are alive and sentient. Mm-hmm. And there's even these stacks of paper that begin fluttering from some unknown, you know, gust of wind. It's just super eerie before, you know, they even wake up. Yeah, this the movie. The timing in this movie is is great, and, and oh, yeah. the way they set up everything to come. Yep. But yeah, that's what's one of my my favorite parts of this movie is just how awesome. Well, for one, the set is, and just oh yeah, you know, set you know, design is incredible, especially for the time when they made this movie because you didn't really have crazy looking. I mean, they kind of got some shit kind of right, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, they do a really good job of making you perceive like claustrophobia mm-hmm. like oh yeah and that was from uh ridley's camera work he pretty much did some of the earliest you know sci-fi horror handicam work yeah. and it's because of that style of filming where he's got it on his body he can go through those tight spaces and really just amp up that feeling of claustrophobia and get some really unique angles making you know however big the set was some of those sets were enormous mm-hmm. but he really did a great job of giving you this strange atmosphere just by the way he shot, you know, these angles and these parts of this movie. And our crew begins to wake up one by one from this hypersleep and assume they made it home. But they're all bummed out to find out they actually have only traveled halfway from Thetis to Earth. And here we get our first glimpse of our main gender-swapping hero of the film, Ripley, portrayed by the insanely awesome Sigourney Weaver. Ellen Ripley's character was written to be gender-neutral, and Sigourney Weaver's ability to take the role and transform it into a strong female lead speaks volumes about her acting ability and passion for the role. Which is crazy, too, because like this being her first movie, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Before we sat down to, to say, hey, Alien's our next movie, up until this point, I had never seen Alien all the way through. It's always like chunks, bits and pieces here and there. I mm, knew... For shame. Yeah, right? And like, everybody's like, oh, God, it's crazy. How could you not do that? But... um Watching this movie from start to finish, like Sigourney, like the way they introduce her, you're, you, back then, you would have never guessed she would have been the main, you know, hero, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. final girl, basically. 
That's one of my favorite things about this movie yeah. is there's no direct main character through a good third of the movie. Yeah. Oh, it's, for sure. It's really about being able to, you know, be relatable to mm-hmm. these to the so like each crew members. Yeah, each, each crew member. And that's what I like about uh, Starship crew movies and TV shows is that that's why they're so important is because it does show you a lot of like the personalities because a crew is always going to have mm-hmm. conflicting personalities and you know, as you'll see later in the movie, each person does smart things and dumb shit. <laughs> so, speaking of cool stuff that she's done, um, and I sent Sean the video of it. That school that put on that alien play, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's on YouTube. You can look it up and you can watch it. And it's not the greatest quality, but it's like the only way to actually watch it. Yep. So, mm-hmm. um, and she actually came in and did like a kind of a monologue before the play started. For that school and introduced it and and right. you know she's kind of a cool lady well didn't she actually like she tried to make it and she didn't show up on time and so she made a pretty big contribution to that school system in order for them to put on like an encore yeah. isn't that yeah, kind of the yeah, full she, story i'm pretty sure she funded or funded a good portion of the encore and helping getting it you know yeah, them to put to it back out. together and yeah and, Oh yeah, you, you've if you watch the video, you can see the auditorium they're in is it's packed. That's rad. That's so cool. That be, and I'm pretty cool. sure none of them actually like none of the audience. I kind of got the feeling knew that she was going to be there until she walked out on stage. Yeah. Right. Right. And so that's oh, even, you would have had a mob in that little town if you would have announced you know a forward by Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yeah. Well, and something else really just awesome about this movie is they do a lot of that, you know, gender role swapping and they take a lot of left turns. And like you guys said earlier, for the better part of the first part of the movie, it's very much two females who are going to be second, you know, supporting characters and then just your team of good old boys. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as we find out by seeing the movie towards the second half of the movie, she becomes pretty much the main character. The AI mainframe M-U-T-H-U-R, or Mother as it's called by the crew, has detected a distress beacon of unknown origin. The crew argues and discusses what to do next, and then they are reminded by Ash, the spaceship's resident hall monitor, that they are contractually obligated to investigate any distress signal that they might come across during any of their travels, and it becomes obvious that the crew didn't read the fine print in their contracts. The Nostromo was named after a ship from Joseph Conrad's 1904 novel Nostromo, A Tale of the Seaboard. This is a running theme in all of the Alien franchise, as Ridley Scott is a huge fan of Conrad's writing. It's crazy. This this whole first movie alone is just one big love letter to everything, all the crew members, all the cast. Well, I should say all the crew members, you know, were inspired by. It's really pretty, pretty interesting. And I think that I think that's great. I think everybody's I, Magnum Opus should be be that, like a collection yeah, of it, like what inspired you to be who you are. I think that's dope. Sure. Well, next, the crew sets out to check out the signal from where it's located on a planetoid named LV-426. It's dark, it's windy, and it's downright creepy. While landing in a dust storm, debris begins to cake up on the thrusters and the compressor, causing system failures and hours of maintenance to fix the problem. Three crew members, Captain Dallas, Navigator Lambert, and Executive Officer Kane, then suit up and set out to find the source of the unknown signal. While the dust storm rages on, they make their way through the dark and barely visible atmosphere, 
and soon they come across a derelict ship that seems to have crash-landed on LV-426. Making their way into the ship, they come across a giant fossilized humanoid being sitting in the pilot's seat of the crashed ship, and upon further inspection, they notice that the large humanoid entity is mortally wounded, and it looks like it's had something explode outward from its ribcage from the inside. Maybe that was the physical manifestation of the internal hope to leave that godforsaken Dust Bowl. <laughs> no shit. The large space jockey, as it was called, was designed and painted by H.R. Giger himself, who was disappointed he couldn't put any finishing touches on it before the scene was filmed. Sadly, in the end, the space jockey prop was burned and destroyed by <laughs> a burning cigarette that somebody had left on the prop. Wow. That's so crazy. Because, you know, during the, uh, during the documentary Memory, that actual set was enormous. Like, they built yeah. that entire thing. It wasn't just several yeah. parts they filmed with angles. It was just one giant structure. And I, I love yeah, the, and, and, I love that, that huge sculpture of it. It was so tight. Like, and it, you know, and obviously yeah. with, you know, uh, the other alien films with the tying into that too. It's just so cool. Well, and we'll so. put some pictures up on our Insta too of, you oh, can yeah. see how people standing next to it and just how, you know, monumental Enormous it, it was. Yeah. yeah. Which is really good. Cause it did. Well, I mean, it looked so alien, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah, yeah for did. real. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Holy shit. Well, after this, Kane notices a tunnel underground and decides he should make a poor decision and take a deeper look into the ship's bizarre corridors. He then comes to a room and tells the other party members it appears to be full of eggs and also a strange foreboding mist-like fog substance that's covering the floor. So the blue laser lights that were used in the alien ship's egg chamber in the opening well, they were actually borrowed from The Who. The band was testing out the lasers for their stage show on the soundstage next door. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> Teamwork rad. again. It's so... <laughs> yeah, right? it, it's crazy just how so many, like, instances happen to get this film made and everything. That's just... I don't know. Do you think they come back and be like, uh, we're going to need some uh, royalties for using our lights? Yeah. <laughs> and on this next song, you might recognize these from the Alien Egg Chamber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of egg chambers, because Kane is full of bad decisions, at this point he manages to slip off the path he's supposed to stay on and has found his way to the lower floor of the structure with dozens of bizarre, dare I even say alien-looking eggs that are littered across the floor. And so then, while he's examining the eggs, he starts to notice a strange, shuddering movement inside one of them. Just in time for the top of the creepy egg to peel back and open up like some blossoming petals from the universe's shittiest flower. <laughs> and then <laughs> out jumps what can only be described as the, the offspring of a squid and a scorpion that someone decided to marinate inside a nightmare. I think before we go on anymore, we better drop a disclaimer. Some of the next stuff we're going to get into is a little sexual because, as you're going to find out, Geiger was extremely interested in wrapping up sexuality with biomechanics. So a lot of the design of the eggs, the face hugger, the xenomorph, those were all very sexual in nature. And as outward as that might seem, they were extremely toned down from some of the original concepts. Mm -hmm. So quick disclaimer, trigger warning, things might get a little... Spicy. Sex spicy. <laughs> the practical effects for the ovomorph, xenomorph eggs as we know them, were actually stuffed with cow hearts and stomachs procured from a nearby slaughterhouse. The facehugger's egg tube was a tail that was made by sheep intestine. 
Could you still do that today with all the animal rights activists and stuff like that, animal rights stuff? Could you? I think it depends on how much you care. I think it also depends on if you can prove the animals were dead before you got the parts. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to go to a butcher, you know, clearly everything's already dead. So yeah. all mm-hmm. that stuff gets thrown away or made into sausage. So, I mean. That's true. And I think you just have to go in there and say, hey, guys, I just need whatever I can make an ovomorph out of. And they'll pretty much know what yeah. you're talking about. I need some stomach lining to make an alien egg. (laughs) Speaking of the egg tube tail and all this, you know, animal parts they use to simulate the embryonic movements of the face hugger prior to bursting out of the egg. Ridley Scott was actually underneath this pile of animal parts and with rubber gloves on his hands, he was actually making those things throb and shudder and pulse and move around. So that is some super morbid puppetry right there. It is. And a lot of dedication. Mm -hmm. So the original design of the eggs only had one slit across the top, but it was changed because the studio felt it resembled a vagina. And unfortunately, they thought that that would get them censored in predominantly Catholic countries. Probably a smart move. Right. It probably would even today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially, I mean, shit. I think the 70s and also today your censorship's kind of the same. Because back in the 70s, you could actually sell a movie by just boasting, this movie's been banned in 40 countries. <laughs> yeah. You know, unfortunately. When you make something forbidden fruit. <laughs> and then this little bundle of oh hell no latches on to Kane's face, and we have our first inkling that the occupants on the Nostromo are in for one real terrifying treat. Now, now real quick, if we land on an alien planet, to investigate uh-huh. what we've found to be an alien or a form of, you know, being. The first thing you do is stick your face in it. Yeah. <laughs> you motorboat that shit. Because that is exactly what he did. An idiot. Like, yeah. I'm just going to, I'm going to fall off this ledge and then stick yeah. my face into this thing that's clearly alive and moving and opening yeah. up as I'm getting closer. And, to and it. if I'm ever yeah. in that situation where I'm like, oh, I'm on another other planet chilling with my homies looking into the old ship and then something pops out of an egg that looks like a spider with a vagina and it attaches to his face <laughs> you're getting mm-hmm. left there i'm leaving you <laughs> i'm not right. gonna be like oh we need to get him back no you're done and we're getting the fuck out yeah. of there <laughs> like, ripley tr- ripley tried Bless her heart. <laughs> yes, yes. As we, as we progress, we'll find out she yeah. tried very hard. That Steve, you're right. That's part of the contract. You sign that with blood that says if you get infected by anything, I'm sorry about your bad <laughs> you're luck. Done. Like bye. Like, well, <laughs> go lay next to that space jockey. Yeah. <laughs> they were all so surprised about their contract and having to investigate. So I'm sure they didn't even read. I mean, it was probably just sign the dotted line. This is how much money we're making. Yeah. Well, because they already start talking about how much money they're going to get, how are they cutting it, how are they splitting up, you Especially know, the, the dividends crew. and everything. So, the maintenance oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, one last fact about the uh, face hugger: as it attacks Kane, the egg actually was mounted upside down, and the camera looked up as the operator thrust it downward into the lens like a hand puppet. So that entire scene is actually done inverted to make it look like it's lunging out at, at somewhat of a uh, anti-gravity type. That's what I love about us doing the show is learning yeah. the camera tricks and just how things, you know, when we watch them on our TV, we don't, you know, the wiser and just how much work and creativity, like mm-hmm. physics you have to, well, you have to overcome like physics mm-hmm. to be able to present something on a screen 
Oh, for sure. That looks like it's not just some hokey shit tied to yeah. fishing. You and know, to make launch. it, and to make it <laughs> right. Like you have to think like um, psychologically too. Like how is this going to affect the viewer to be able to see this angle at this moment? You know, I think of that mm-hmm. with the shining. Where he's down on the ground looking up at Jack with the camera, like that's fucking incredible. Like who who would have thought of that? They could have just did a, a did oh, a man. side shot, yeah. but underneath Kubrick did that. It's like fuck, that's so cool. Well, Geiger had a lot to do with some of the movements of these aliens because he was tasked basically with not only making the anatomy for creatures that don't exist, but also coming up with the way you know these creatures would anatomically and mechanically operate. So his original design for the face hugger actually was much, much larger, and the creature had eyes and a spring-loaded tail, a lot like a jack-in-the-box. So later, in response to comments from the filmmaker, Geiger actually reduced the creature's size down substantially, and Dan O'Bannon initially uh, conceived the face hugger as somewhat resembling an octopus possessing tentacles. However, later on, he received H.R. Geiger's designs, and he uh, substituted the tentacles with those finger-like digits, making it more like a spider. And to me, that's more aggressive. An octopus, that's pretty scary, tentacles in Mm -hmm. space. But a thing that latches on, like the bones and just the structure of that thing was much more imposing to me. Well, and I think more people are probably scared of spiders than octopuses. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm more creeped out by the face hugger than I am the alien itself. Now, when they were actually, you know, physically crafting the face hugger, nobody was available at the time. So O'Bannon himself actually designs the face hugger prop, and the technical elements of the muscle and the bone were added by Ron Cobb. Geiger's initial design for a smaller face hugger had fingers facing forward, but O'Bannon redesigned the creature, shifting those off to the side. When the foam rubber sculpture of the face hugger was produced, it originally was supposed to be like neon green and like super, super just bright and pop on the camera. <laughs> but then O'Bannon actually said, you know what? This should remain unpainted, believing that the rubber um, and the color of human skin was much scarier and people could, you know, basically be creeped out even more, saying it's more plausible instead of having it be this neon green, <laughs> you know, 1980s pop punk. That's kinda. awesome. Could you imagine if if there was, like, a version of this out there with a bright neon green alien? Well, I think some of the toys, like, that they produce do have... Neon green? Different colors, yeah. Yeah, the the toy line, uh, by the way, is one of the best toy lines of all time, I think. They introduced a lot of color, but they were a lot of, like, metallic. Metallic blues, metallic greens, oranges, and reds. But now the new line that's, uh, I think, a Walmart exclusive, those things are just, like... (laughs) Andy Warhol, right? Those, those things it's are freaking like awesome. And purples Brady and took his out of the box. Yeah, it looks yeah. really badass. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. I, I'd love to see how some of these, you know, new toy modders and painters and custom makers could repaint one of those. Dude, I didn't even think of that. Holy shit. And it's worth noting here, like you guys mentioned before, um, the crew returns to the Nostromo and Ridley denies the crew a reentry with Kane having been exposed to this alien organism. She actually says, no, that if she lets them in, then it could contaminate the entire crew, maybe even kill them all. Smart. But Ash, yeah, but Ash, in his infinite wisdom, pops the door hatch button and lets them all in because he's got a real morbid curiosity of just what exactly happened to Kane, and he's especially curious about this weird creature that has affixed itself to his face. Of course he is. He's Bilbo Baggins. As Kane is being examined by Ash, they remove his helmet with a saw, 
and we then get to see the facehugger alien in all of its glory. After scanning Kane and trying to figure out just what exactly they're dealing with, Ash tries to cut the facehugger off, only to find out that this organism has a defense mechanism built in, and it's acid blood. The blood leaks onto the floor and starts eating holes all the way through the deck of the Nostromo. Kane awakens, and the alien appears to have died, and Kane is believed to have been recovered from the incident, and the crew sits down to have a meal. However, during the meal, he experiences severe stomach pains. It's not just the oatmeal. And then, in one of the most iconic scenes in contemporary film, an alien erupts from his chest, escaping into the Nostromo. I just want to point out how, how casual everybody was after the facehugger <laughs> let go of his face. They were just like, oh, dinner oh, time. Close one. Anybody want oatmeal? <laughs> like, or maybe like, like you should probably stay in this locked room. Yeah, maybe. While we're not in here. <laughs> right. Maybe someone, you know, shoves him out of the airlock and he just gets lost out in that planet too. Yeah. Again, that's going to be in the new contract. The chestburster alien birth was inspired by Dan's personal bout with Crohn's disease feeling like it was eating him away from the inside, and also with his study of parasitic wasps and how they inject their eggs into other insects, such as caterpillars, only to have the unsuspecting victim become a incubator and also source nutrition for the eggs and larvae, only to have the caterpillar unknowingly carry the larvae around and then suddenly have them burst from its body. Shusit suggests the alien entity needs to fuck the human to impregnate it with a seed, and that would be needed to carry the larva, and then house the larvae until it's ready to burst forth, only after feeding. In fact, speaking of insects, Dan was really, really, really enthralled by bug movies and insects, and this had a huge effect on Dan, and really became his deep inspiration, because he hated the look of insects. He actually wrote a short story called They Bite, about a cicada creature that slowly picks off a group of campers one by one. It's terrifying. Oh, yeah, dude. All the alien movies of his childhood were about insects. Big, giant Which bugs. makes sense for his age. Back... That was all the rage back then. You can see drawings he would do of creatures and how insect-like they were when he was developing memory. Oh, and yeah. All, you know, they bite. And you really kind of get a sense of, even before Giger got a hold of the character design, just where the xenomorph was like originating from. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's so. like they just melded, you know, basically mechanics and bugs is how they kind of came up with this idea, I think. Yeah. Now, what's pretty great about that scene with the chest burster and the dinner is that we're going to see the first onslaught of the crew happen during one of their most vulnerable times together. You know, as we sit down to eat, that's kind of a moment where the world pauses and you're pretty safe. You don't like to be bothered. We want to sit in stillness and relax and eat. I mean, other than like, you know, sitting on a toilet, there's not a whole lot more vulnerable positions you could be in just to have this kind of thing happen. During this time in the uh, the 70s, you know, sitting down in the evening with your family for a meal, that was very mm -hmm. common. And it mm -hmm. was, you know, it was commonplace too. You know, mom and dad at the end of the table, kids, you know, sitting on to left and right. And oh, yeah. it's time for family, time for, you know, wind down. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Not this time, baby. Dinner is interrupted. It's almost a very tongue-in-cheek, you know, separation of the family because now everything's disrupted. And also think about this. 
you've only eaten three or four bites of your food and now this shit happens. Mm -hmm. So not only are you trying to find an alien in a small ship, you're also probably starving. And once that adrenaline runs out, like you're going to be wrecked trying to find this creature and survive the attack. Not to mention it's dancing with a top hat. Hello, my baby. Hello, my dog. (laughs) Right. Now, because I'm an artist and we do deep dives, I always get so excited to learn about the art that inspires the look and feel of characters in the movies I watch. And what exactly inspired Ridley Scott for the look of the chestburster was a very interesting painting called Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion from 1944 by the artist Francis Bacon. Now, I'll include pictures of this because it's going to make a heck of a lot more sense when you see it. Yeah, but it's pretty Bacon, warped. It really is. Bacon was really, really interested in the human mouth and the simplicity and beauty of it. Ridley saw this painting and told Geiger that he really liked the character in the painting was a worm-like mouth creature, so Geiger obliged and made the very creepy yet simplistic chestburster. Oh, hell no, that thing's creepy as fuck. Yeah, it's pretty much a worm with yeah. tiny legs and uh, some really nasty metal teeth. It's a cool photo. It's cool, cool art, though. Now, again, let's drop another trigger warning here because in just a few seconds, we're going to venture back into the topic of sexual assault. So if you want to skip this part, maybe jog ahead about a minute or two, you know. But we got to go into something that's incredibly important about this movie. It's about the usage of sexuality and the decisions that Bannon, I'm sorry, O'Bannon made in regards to the usage of sex, especially in the 70s and 80s in the horror sci-fi film industry. In a world where we are used to and honestly we expect the female characters in these films to be topless and overly sexualized, Alien does something different. We get a chance to see a man fall prey to the creature, to the onslaught, to the monster. And then man essentially gets sexually assaulted. O'Bannon wanted to stray away from the female characters getting thrust into the part of the victim and to finally show a man becoming the one who gets violated instead. Thus, we see a very phallic creature get forced into the male victim's mouth, simulating an oral sex act. And then, not too much longer after that, we get to see yet again a man become the unsuspecting and unwilling carrier of a monster's offspring. And we get to see the iconic scene of a male pregnancy, gone way wrong, of course, that takes us into a wonderful break from the usual terrestrial horror sex tropes. And I think it's worth pointing out just one more way that Alien really flips this usual gender role, you know, on its head. True. And it's then, not long after that, where we get our first good look at the Xenomorph, which has now grown to a gnarly, full-grown beast. And it lowers itself down the strangely atmospheric air shaft that's somehow raining, (laughs) and it briefly reveals itself to the ship's engineer, Brett, before opening its mouth to reveal perhaps one of the most iconic physical features of the Xenomorph, a second mouth. Shiny teeth. Which then penetrates... But again, let's use that word penetrates Brett's forehead just before the creature takes a hold of Brett and quickly whisks him away into the air shaft. And again, this is tightly captured by Ripley's, I'm sorry, Ridley's handheld pano yeah. camera shots getting real tight. Not only that, but the, the cat, what's the cat's name? Yeah, Jones. Jones like Jones. With the whole scene with that, with the cat sitting there. And like looking oh, all yeah. scared and shit, like not knowing what to do. Cause cats in nature, 
they don't like run away like a dog. They'll sit there and wait to see what the danger is. So like mm-hmm. the way he captured that was so great. Oh, for sure. And also what's great about the Nostromo, how do you make a place feel like a home? You put a pet yep. in it. Yep. Yep. Have a little space and kitty. So they can to get the reaction that they did from Jones, they actually had to use a uh, I believe it was a German shepherd to get him to, to pa- yeah wow like, like literally scared the shit out of him so he would you know arch his back yeah. and hiss and yeah they used they used the dog to get that reaction holy shit that's, that's interesting which makes you wonder has the cat at this point seen the xenomorph you know in the costume or because <laughs> maybe it could have got a reaction out of that no as well shit. well let's talk a little bit about the xenomorph shall we this uh is not your grandparents alien because so far, we haven't really seen too many alien movies um, around this time in that decade, uh, or iconic alien movies, I should say, besides Close Encounters, which came out two years before. And that movie captured a whole different type mm-hmm. of alien. It's more of your classic gray alien. Well, this is a polar opposite. H.R. Giger is responsible for the nightmarish design of the alien we all know today. The original concept for the creature is that it would be albino and translucent initially, allowing viewers to see its internal organs before its skin would gradually harden and turn to a darker complexion. Oh. Now, was that actually used later on then in the prequel films? Yeah. Yes. It's okay. uh, Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that. Yeah, the, uh, oh God, what do they call it? The, the Neomorph? Yeah, it's a Neomorph. In that movie, isn't the yeah. one that's on the ship? Or like uh, as like on the outside of the ship, just trying to break into that little ship that's flying around. No, that's that's Covenant. Okay, okay, Covenant. Okay, okay. H.R. Geiger's art design of the amalgamation of sex and bioengineering blew O'Bannon away, and O'Bannon knew instantly he wanted Geiger badly to create the concept paintings for the alien. He wanted Geiger so badly, he actually paid a personal check of $1,000 down as a down payment to Geiger just to secure his art style. But then later, executives fired Geiger uh, because the higher-up executives thought that the imagery was so disturbing and perverse it would never make it. But luckily, Ridley Scott fell in love with the art style as well, and uh, this was from his exposure to Geiger's book called The Necronomicon, which people should get, a, you know, at least go online and Google the pictures huh. for it. Uh, he had a lot of interesting artwork in that as well. You'll see a lot of where the design for Alien came from. Oh, his, for sure. His dude. early work, and yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, you know, so he gets fired and then Ridley looks at that book and he's like, oh, shit, we got to get this guy back now. So he pulls some strings and gets Geiger hired back in. And the man behind the morph, as I call it, um, is something else exceptionally impressive because, again, this alien, it's practical effects. It's a dude in a suit, which is really impressive. Yep. And his name is going to be butchered. I believe it is Malaji... Badejo? Badejo? Yeah, apologies up front. It is a uh, Yoruban name, which I'm sure we butchered. But Badejo was of Yoruban descent and was a son of a director general of the Nigerian Broadcasting Corporation. He first studied in Nigeria and then went to the U.S. before finally moving to London to specialize in graphic design. He was actually then discovered in a Soho pub by a member of Scott's casting team, Ridley Scott's casting team. 
He was chosen to play the part due to his tall, slender body, broad shoulders, and the fact that he was six foot ten inches, so damn near seven That's, feet tall. It went. They they went through a lot of like casting calls, if you will, to try okay. to find somebody to be able to you know don the suit or that mm-hmm. would fit mm-hmm. what he wanted. He wanted a tall, lanky creature, and luckily they found that with uh, Mr. Badeo. Yep. So Mr. Badeo attended Tai Chi classes because Ridley Scott needed the xenomorph's movements to be deliberate and graceful, like a little dancing, like creeping with well, the yeah, arms. Yeah, you look shit. at yeah. it, and this thing yeah. almost is, yeah, it's almost yeah. dainty. Kind of like, kind of like a T Rex with the arms, like where it does it, like you know? <laughs> yeah, very it's like true. A dainty ballerina of death. So the alien's mask and headpiece that Balaji wore had over 900 moving parts and took several hours to put on. That's crazy shit. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. that's. A, I wonder what happened to the original, the original piece. It's probably sitting it's in, a, in a mine somewhere being preserved. Yeah, it's an assault. Yeah, yeah. it's an assault mine somewhere. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> um, so Mr. Badejo wore the alien suit for the first, for the film. And as we said earlier, he's six foot 10, which is huge. Uh, Peter oh, yeah. Mayhew of the Star Wars fame, Chewbacca, almost wore the suit as well, which is pretty tight. That Yeah, because they were probably two of the biggest dudes in film. It's so cool that people that are uh, extremely tall or extremely uh, short, <laughs> uh, that they get like, you know, they get to play icon- these iconic roles because, you know, for the, oh, the yeah. way that they were born. And I mean, could you imagine if they somehow tried to tried to just do like a six foot guy in in there and then but try to do like camera work to make it look taller than it was you know what i mean oh god yeah yeah exactly yeah having a guy that is physically that size Mm -hmm. was probably a huge blessing so the creature is never filmed directly facing the camera due to the humanoid features of its face ridley scott determined at all costs to dispel any notion of the man in a rubber suit Filmed the beast in very close-up angles of its ghastly profile, very rarely capturing in its entirety. Huh. I have to point out this in in any creature feature. This is my favorite thing when it comes, and I even consider Jaws a creature feature. Is that yeah. you don't see the monster until almost mm-hmm. the end of the movie, and I think that is to me it's one of the best like ways to I guess write up for a uh, you know a creature yep. in a horror film. Mm-hmm. Is that you got to keep the audience kind of guessing and kind of wondering, you know, what's going to be seen next. That's what mm-hmm. I appreciate of a lot of uh, M. Night Shyamalan and Ding Dong's movies, regardless whether people like his movies or not. Some of his most iconic ones are that to that aspect of like not showing you till the very end. And I dig that for the same reason mm-hmm. of this. Something like um, Jeepers Creepers. I can almost, I mean, it's kind of a creature feature, but it's also like a slasher type of thing. It's really it's like a mixed hybrid. Yeah, I, I'd say it's both. Yeah. But when that movie first when that movie first started, like the very first one, it was that same aspect of like, holy shit, what is this thing? Is this just a dude? And then when you finally find out, like it's the same thing, like waiting for that perfect moment. And an alien, mm-hmm. they wait a long time to do that. You have such a perfect mm-hmm. buildup. Well, yeah, and you I gotta get that buildup into. Yeah. I, I'm a, such a creature feature fan, and I mean, I'm all about, you know, show me the monster. What I really like about Alien is the fact that, yeah, you got to wait like what, over an hour to see the actual xenomorph. But 
you still get to see the chest burster, you still get to see the face hugger. So it's not like they starve you of seeing any kind of, you know, creature mm-hmm. or monster. It's just you get to see this evolution yeah. too. So I didn't feel negated like I'm like, just get mm-hmm. on with it. Come on, you know. So they give you a taste, and I think that's pretty great. Yeah. Rid- Ridley Scott's really good at setting mm-hmm. a tone. Oh, yeah, you for know, sure. For his films. So. And, and with that, like, to go more to that, that the Xenomorph only has four minutes of screen time. For a movie that what how, how long yeah. is the movie an hour and a half maybe a little under almost two hours, damn that went by fast. Uh, so with it only having four minutes of screen time, <laughs> that's a testament to like how terrifying this monster could be to actually mm-hmm. you know sure. go, go through that. So when I was a kid, when I would when I would go to sleep, every time I closed my eyes, instantly the xenomorph was like right next to my face, like he would be oh, Ridley. Wow. Like, that's how I always pictured when I was, you know, three, four years old. It's like, I'm going to close my eyes, and he's just going to be sitting there. And I'm going to wake up and get my fucking brain <laughs> ate. Well, um, I'll mention this one, Steve. In Geiger's original illustrations, the creature actually had eyeballs. But for the movie, Geiger insisted that the creature have no eyes, thus giving the bleak appearance of a cold and emotionless beast. So to preserve the shock value of the alien's appearance, no production images of it were released. Not even to the author, Alan Dean Foster, when he was writing the novelization of the first film. This is awesome because this reminds me so much. This is what I think made it 2017, yeah, 2017 Mm -hmm. chapter one so special because the amazing cast of younger young actors and actress that they got to play the Losers Club, they had not seen dude in uh, Skarsgård in full makeup and suit. They were completely left in the dark Mm -hmm. on that, the same way as this is. And I think that is perfect. I think that's how every creature feature should be made, every scary movie. You should get at least, try to get it, try to keep it secure. You know what I mean? Like, keep it it mystery so that when when you do surprise the actors or actresses, they're just like, what? Like, they're just so shocked. Yep. Well, and think about it back then, like you didn't have the movie poster that had the xenomorph on it. So that's a great Mm -hmm. way to get people to come see your movie because you're coming out of the film like, oh, my God, the creature is so crazy. And you're telling all your friends, well, they got to go watch the Mm -hmm. movie to see it. You know, you can't look at a poster or, you know, a lobby card or anything like that. And I think the original poster just had a picture of uh, the uh, like the egg. Yeah, the ovomorph. And I and I think that like we're never going to get this again. We're never going to get that mystery of what the monster, what the villain is going to be because Mm -hmm. of the internet and spoilers run rampant and not by just people, but by companies themselves and trailers. So you're, you never, you never get that, that, that mystery of, of what it is. You know, I, Cloverfield tried to, they did a good job save for the internet. Like that's true. I, didn't I didn't know if it was robots, Godzilla, aliens, what, you know? So even in Cloverfield, you still don't get a great look at really any of the creatures. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 pretty hit and miss with Same with the Mist. The Mist did really well with the the movie with that. It's like when they did the trailer yeah. for that, they didn't show like the 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 stuff in the mist to a degree, just the stuff attacking the actual building. Try not to go into spoilers too much in case people haven't seen it, go watch it. But I, I, I love that aspect, but it's very hard to do that to the consumer. To the cast, it's it can be achieved. But to the consumer, it's really hard. I think nowadays, if 
like people that you know design the the trailers i think they feel like they have to give almost too much away to get people to come to their movies mm-hmm. yeah that's what the entire conjuring universe like let me show you every scary thing in the trailer that way you come see a movie mm, you need to you need to you need to like back it up i think just every bloomhouse yeah. movie <laughs> like, well speaking of you know never seeing things Balaji Badejo never returned after the first Alien movie for any sequels. Um, all the sequels tended to use more puppetry and animation instead of people in suits. And the original Alien is also his only film credit. Um, it's kind of hard to find a lot of info about him, but essentially his family revealed later on that he returned to Nigeria in 1980 and began running his own art gallery in 1983. And I do believe he ended up passing away around 1992, Damn. unfortunately. Yeah. So They moved away from, from I think, the, a man in a suit is because the character designs, the xenomorph designs changed to be more mm-hmm. like, animalistic in their movements. Sure, sure. And so, you know, if you watch Aliens, you have you get actually see the alien queen, and you know, no one can wear that suit. I mean, mm-hmm. it's huge. So, well, after Brett gets taken away, whisked up the air shaft, and now the crew debates how exactly to exterminate the creature, worrying about the safety of the ship itself. So then they decide to capture the alien and burn it. So crew member Dallas begins a pulse-pounding game of hide-and-seek with the alien whilst carrying around a flamethrower, only to meet a similar fate as Brett, and now the body count has risen to three. Dun-dun-dun. So I like the comedy in this movie with between crew members. So when uh, Brett and Parker are talking and they are really (laughs) – Brett always says, right, right. Like, is that all you ever fucking say is right? <laughs> like, I love that shit because I know right. a guy at my work currently, and he always does that. You'll be talking about anything. He'll be like, right, right. <laughs> so when I watched that the other day, I was like, this is so gold. Upon Dallas's death, the crew agrees to slowly force the alien creature into the cargo hold and then eject the monster from the ship into the cold, deathly vacuum of outer space rather than bring the alien back to Earth for research or possible corporate gain, because they don't know what we're going to find out. A race to contain the alien ensues, but the alien continues to kill crew members ruthlessly. Ripley tries to find a way to dispose of the alien once and for all, and while troubleshooting with the computer system of the ship, Mother, she then learns that Ash has been employed to bring the alien back to Earth for research and potential profit, no matter the cost. Boom, big reveal. Mother informs her that the system is programmed to return the alien back to Earth, even at the expense of the lives of the crew members. When Ripley interrogates him, Ash attacks her. He also starts sweating some weird white milk. (laughs) And engineer Parker and crew Lambert rushed Ripley's aid, decapitating Ash to reveal that (gasps) he's an android put aboard the ship to ensure the retrieval of the alien and its safe transport back to Earth. I think out of this whole movie, when I, like I said earlier, I had not watched this movie, but in pieces, I had not mm-hmm. seen this part with that. Like I knew that he, I knew that he was an Android. Wow. I knew that whole plot twist, but I had never seen him get decapitated. I was like, holy shit, that is brutal. So Brady, tell us what that was made with. Cause that is phenomenal. Well, speaking of milk, Ash's Android's insides were made from pasta, caviar, marbles, all covered in milk. <sighs> 
So a big nasty bowl of cereal. (laughs) It's so gross. Ridley Scott's like, wait, guys, you know what we can do to save a little bit of this budget? Let's just use leftovers. (laughs) Marbles. Like what? Yeah. What's funny to me, too, like Steve, you mentioned seeing this movie in bits and pieces. I hadn't actually sat down to watch Alien from start to finish um, since probably like 15 years ago. And in my head, for whatever reason, the chest bursting, uh, the chest burster came outside of the robot, the android. So in my head, there's a alien busting out of the chest and then the white marbles and the goop coming out of that. So I had this whole thing like a screen memory. Wow. That's for cool. whatever reason. Yeah. So seeing that secondary, because I'm like, wait, there was something with like white. I remember white blood. And then whenever, of course, you know, Ash gets destroyed. I was like, oh, wonderful. I think during the movie, they don't really, up until now, they don't really get the whole like evil, like corporate, you know, agenda. Right. Until towards right. the end of the movie. It's not a, a main plot point as, as like all the, the sequels and prequels. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just thought that was neat. Well, that and what's cool, too, is they kind of learn that part of the story by <laughs> hot wiring Ash to the motherboard. Yeah. Which was so cool just to see that nasty milky thing. That was awesome. Not yeah. to mention like the 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 interface of mother and like them know I mean like let's get real. Like Ripley, like what was her exact title? Uh warrant officer. Warrant officer. So do you think maybe she, do you think she oh. had training on that thing? Because like it's just like ask another question. Like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> All right, magic eight ball. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, enhance. Enhance. Yeah. enhance. Well, after hot wiring his head to the motherboard, they kind of learned the uh, exact reason for going to that alien planet. The three remaining crew members prepare to self-destruct the ship and escape in a small shuttle. Lambert and Parker are then killed while gathering supplies for the escape. And then again, we're thrust into this uncomfortable cat and mouse game between a flamethrower toting Ripley and the alien. Ripley stumbles upon old Jonesy Cat, and then together they make up the final remaining crew members, and they manage to rush into the escape shuttle and fly away out of the Nostromo as it has about one minute left before self-destructing. We're uh, two-thirds, you know, into the movie, a little bit over two-thirds, and you're just now seeing the main character. like the Yeah, guy. which is weird. Yeah. And not to mention right. when she's, like, it's so weird to me because, like, for... Th- <laughs> I don't know how to say this without sounding like a cold-hearted bastard. Um, in this, in this moment, in it. this moment, <laughs> I don't think that I would have grabbed the cat. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that oh, it, I don't. Steve just revealed his real nature. I don't think. Well, like I'm saying, like I'm terrified. I'm fucking thinking about like, oh my. Remind me not to get like, onto spaceships. You're Steve. a you're 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 a person. <laughs> I, uh, this is sounding terrible. Okay, check us out. So. I think the stress. Preface it by this way. Mm-hmm. You are in survival mode exactly. and you've got one shot. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Okay, survival mode, one shot, yes. The countdown of that ship about to blow up and then the the stress mm-hmm. of her shutting it down real quick with the, you know, lowering the, the, the reactors back down to the coolant, all that, all that. Like, that was really intense and it gave you that feeling like, holy shit, this thing's going to blow up any second. And a lot of movies have done it before. I liked how they had Ripley grab grab the cat. You know, it's like, oh, shit, the cat's still mm-hmm. alive. The cat's going to get away. That's freaking great. Um, <laughs> Jones. That, that was 
pretty cool. But I, in my idea, in my head, like I would have not grabbed the cat because this is why. And I, that's why <laughs> I wanted to preface this is because I would have been like, hell no, that cat's infected. Like that, that, that you, we could, oh, I know, mean, I know I'm not infected. I know that look. a face hugger or some, some entity has not in, infected me, but I've not seen that cat for a good 45 minutes, an mm-hmm. hour, maybe two hours. So I'm not going to have that thing get on no smaller ship with me. That's what I, that's what, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like, I would have been thinking that. And I see, I think that would have been cool if that would have happened in the movie. I'm just saying. <laughs> you got to wait till alien three for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, I think we all know anybody that has cats. Like that cat isn't going to be anywhere to be found. Yeah, no, no shit. Oh but... yeah, for sure, dude. <laughs> so, well, and that's what I'm like. Oh wait, this thing's in a in a lunchbox now. Like, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah, it's like in a box, and then she like she's panicking. And she just like throws the box. <laughs> yeah, I I thought about that too, and then later I thought, oh man, what a twist it would have been. If she knew the alien is on its way, and so she just like let the cat go down the hallway for the xenomorph to chase after bait, <laughs> was bait, yeah, 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 distraction. Yeah. <laughs> or think, what if, what if the xenomorph would have been scared of the cat? <laughs> she oh, like man. holds, yeah, she, like, like holds, a mouse and an elephant. She holds the cat up like <laughs> like it's a crucifix. Ah, get back. <laughs> yeah. Well, she gets in the pod and she escapes just in time to see a classic explosion that only a 70s sci-fi movie could make. And the commercial starship Nostromo explodes and kills a deadly xenomorph in its wake. Slowly and cautiously, Ripley begins to get comfortable and shut everything down for another hypersleep cycle on her way back to Earth. She throws Jones into its own sleep pod, which to me tells me Ripley is not a cat person. (laughs) When she's then horrified, the alien has actually snuck onto the escape shuttle and is creatively camouflaged and maybe stuck within the machinery because it looks like it's having a hard time getting out. Hell yeah. And that part, again, is because of Geiger's genius biomechanical design of the xenomorph. Because when you first watch it for the first time, you're like... Huh, yep, nothing to see here. Also, I don't know when she go when she tries to shut everything down for hypersleep. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know if she's headed back to Earth or if she knows that she's just kind of fucked. Okay, sure. And she's just gonna fl- float because uh-huh. if if you go by the canon, like she just floats in space for what sixty years. Whoa! Oh wow! I don't know. How long could a person survive in the hypersleep? Uh, Evidently, sixty years. After she slowly hell knows her way backwards into a spacesuit, a struggle ensues, and Ripley manages to blast the doors open inside the escape pod and sends the alien out into the cold depths of space, only to have then harpooned it and tethered it to the side of the ship. But have no fear. The xenomorph attempts to crawl back in one last time to kill Ripley, and it accidentally crawls into one of the spaceship's engines, and Ripley punches a thruster, sending a crispy, dead creature flying into space, and because she's one incredibly badass final girl, Ripley then grabs her kitty and nestles into her hypersleep chamber and scene. Well, a lot of speculation and controversy of just where exactly O'Bannon got his inspiration from for Alien um, led a lot of people to believe he's guilty of ripping off several other movies. O'Bannon once joked, I didn't steal Alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody. There's the 1953 short story, Junkyard, where astronauts find a chamber of eggs. 1965's Planet of the Vampire features the discovery of a huge alien skeleton. 
1956's Forbidden Planet sees a crew picked off one by one after ignoring a warning. And also, O'Bannon being a huge fan of sci-fi comics, one of his biggest inspirations of the facehugger and chestburster was from an old issue of the sci-fi comic book Weird Science. Weird Science. In a story called Seeds of Jupiter. Now, I happen to have the digital copy of Seeds of Jupiter right here. And this is one of the reasons why initially this episode got postponed for a little longer than it should have. Because eight, Brady and I both ordered a copy of uh, Weird Science number 8, thinking it was going to be like an entire graphic novel, forgetting the fact that many comics from the 50s and 60s were pretty much little anthologies. So all that weight for like a five, six, what, eight-page comic <laughs> Yep, eight, eight pages. Yeah. But with Seeds of Jupiter, it says, From out of the night sky, they plunged to Earth. They were the Seeds of Jupiter. And basically, the, the premise here is on a U.S. aircraft carrier going through the sea. You've got this motley crew, and one of them's name is Peach Pit, who likes to, what, Steve? Suck on an entire mm. Peach Pit, because why wouldn't you? It's the 50s. And so they keep making fun of him. He always has his Peach Pit in his mouth. Well... A meteor strikes the side of the U.S. aircraft carrier, and all of a sudden, out of the meteor falls these little bitty seeds. And so one of the guys picks up a seed and says, Here, Peach Pit, put this in your mouth. So Peach Pit sticks it in his mouth, sucks on it for a while. Then one of the guy makes fun of him, slaps him on the back, and causes him to swallow the weird alien seed. You can kind of guess what happens from here. In this story, the seed sucks up all the moisture out of Peach Pit, causing him to turn into this dried husk of a man. And then, as the doctor's deft hand wields the scalpel, Peach Pit's breathing stops. He is dead suddenly. Yeah, what's that, Doc? Oh my god! The hideous creature that the doctor's scalpel has freed slithers to the floor of the laboratory and scurries towards the door. And it's this creepy, squid-looking alien creature that whips out of his chest cavity and slithers off into the sea. But yeah, that basically um, became a huge inspiration as well. And a little bit of a disappointment for Brady and I to wait you know, a week and a half to get our comic books. <laughs> still, though. Still cool to have. It's cool to have. And it caused me to download like all 30 issues of Weird Science comic books. Yeah. And also, O'Bannon helped John Carpenter with a student film called Dark Star, which has a very similar premise to Alien, but it was more of a comical version. And the creature in that movie was almost like a beach ball-looking thing. Like, it wasn't really wow. threatening at all. And then O'Bannon, uh, after not getting any of the producer rights, actually says, you know what, I could probably do a better job than him at this. And make a much better alien creature. And thus he goes and on to make this. I actually watched uh, Dark Star. Oh, really? Um, two weeks ago. It was on... <clears throat> I want to say it's on Apple TV. I could be wrong. But, oh, rad. And it is kind of hard to watch. I'm not going to lie. Oh, uh, pretty pretty cheesy. It's definitely a student film. And, and not that it isn't good and doesn't have its place. It was just... I think it's just something you kind of have to be in the mood for. Uh-huh. Because the humor in it is kind of dry, and then it... Initially, I'm pretty sure the movie was wrote to be an actual, like, 
not a comedy and then it was turned into a comedy oh. and you can kind of tell just by the flow and the dialogue between people but you know if you got an hour and a half to burn i don't even know if it's an hour and a half it's not a very long movie but you know huh check it out oh yeah i've seen the scene of the creature kind of like at the end of a hallway during one of the encounters and it was just kind of lackluster so i can see why o'bannon thought he could do better but it's crazy you know, he him working with John Carpenter, you know. Oh, yeah. So was it one of John Carpenter's student films himself or just something he was helping with? I want to say it's one of his films. Okay. I mean, they they give him credit in everything I've read, so. Okay, cool. See, I didn't, I didn't know how to read that if it was one of his, or I mean, I guess it was in the documentary. I didn't know how to take that. If it was yeah. his student it, film we, or just. And we might be wrong, but the way I read it, it was John Carpenter and O'Bannon helped write some of it and acted in it. So. Oh, okay. And then Carpenter maybe just wanted sole production yeah. rights or director's rights or whatever. Okay, cool. Well, we've only got a couple factoids left to mop up that we didn't stitch inside of the show. So if you guys want to just kind of go through that uh, one by one. Cool. If Star Wars had not been successful, Alien likely would not have been made. True, because Fox is like, oh, we want to cash in on all that. Like Fox does this all the time. They always want to cash in on what's on what was yep. successful. Then ugh, it's ridiculous. They mm-hmm. they still do it to yeah. this day. Also, they wanted Fox wanted to make a a sci fi movie and try you know try to cash in mm-hmm. on the Star Wars you know hype mm-hmm. and the only sci-fi space theme script that they had that was ready to go was was alien so yeah. well i mean i'd say they rolled the dice and got snake eyes because that turned out to be a pretty damn good yep. franchise so as we all know uh star wars being very popular for that for this time when this movie was made harrison ford actually turned down the role of captain dallas that would have been a way way weirder uh weirder yeah me, me yeah, i'm glad that didn't happen yeah uh, I like Dallas. I, I like that too. character. Yeah. That uh, Meryl Streep, amazing, was almost cast as Ripley. Veronica Cartwright was also auditioned for the role, but instead was given the role of Lambert. Did we mention when Lambert was surprised with the chestburst explosion? I don't think we mentioned that. And that's like a really that's like a really no, we didn't. thing. No. So we can talk about that real quick. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah. So with the whole chestburster scene where it comes out and the blood squirts everywhere. So they hadn't shown, similar to what we were talking about earlier, they hadn't shown um, any of the cast that how it was going to work and the explosion of the blood. So they got that, that, oh, raw, right. that raw act of uh, Veronica getting, you know, Lambert getting squirted with that blood. Her scream, that's real. That's 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 awesome. And she actually, she, she fell too. She actually like tripped. Yeah. Like on all the blood that was all over the floor. Well, because they tried many, many times to film that scene and they couldn't quite get the uh, the chest burster to break through the way they wanted it to. So not only was it freaky as shit, but they're also kind of probably exhausted, yeah. right? I mean, am I right? They tried to do That's it a couple tough. times. Yeah. So the explosion yep. of the blood and yeah, I, so. yeah, the blood falling on the ground. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, because they Ridley just said, you know what, fuck it, just use all the blood you can, and they just pumped blood through those hoses, and it was a much mm-hmm. bigger explosion of body goo as well. 
So I think that was a bit of a shock too, because they're like, oh yeah, you won't get much blood on you. It's just going to be kind of a, you know, a minor amount of gore, and then no, it explodes and splashes everybody. And I'll go ahead and mention that the original cut of this movie was supposed to be three hours and twelve yeah. minutes. And I look. So I my question is, can it be obtained? Well, it can't be. Yeah. I look, I, I looked it up earlier. So the director's cut of Alien is an alternate version of the 1979 film. It was actually released theatrically in 2003, but it's it's uh-huh. not so that. called the director's cut. It's actually a shortened version of the movie, decreasing the runtime by around a minute. It actually features several alternate scenes, not including the original theatrical version, including the infamous egg morphing scene. Its creation was overseen by Alien director Ridley Scott. I'd be interested to know if yeah. it'll ever be released. Eventually, I mean, it might it might take something like Ridley Scott, you know, heaven forbid, passing away or something. Well, or like a fifty fiftieth anniversary. Yeah, yeah. and the reason like why that, they did so. this is because also the to digitally restore it. Also, they were twentieth uh, Century Fox was preparing the Alien Quadrilogy DVD box set. I used, I, I had that one mm-hmm. from from that era, but I also had I now have the Blu-ray of this of the same quadrilogy, but. They did that to like be like, oh, there's a director's cut in here because they knew that 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 fact was known to a lot of people. So it's pretty interesting to see uh, that. But yeah, oh, well, but apparently he he feels that this is a quote from him. It says, "Upon viewing the proposed expanded version of the film, I felt that the cut was simply too long and the pacing completely thrown off. After all, I cut those scenes out of a re- of a reason back in 1979." However, in the interest of giving the fans a new experience with Alien, I figured there had to be an appropriate middle ground. I chose to go in and recut the proposed long version into a more streamlined and polished alternate version of the film. For marketing purposes, purposes this version is being called the director's cut. Dude, you shaved off a minute. <laughs> like, and, like, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I think it's worth noting that this... This deep dive is the theatrical cut. Yeah. Ridley Scott cites three movies as the shaping influence for Alien. Star Wars Episode Four, or wait, yeah, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, for their depiction of outer space, and also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for its treatment of horror. Three great fucking movies. Texas Chainsaw is a pretty important movie. It mm-hmm. it really is. Be yeah, oh yeah, still to this day, and and be, uh, I guess I'm saying like, taking all your inspirations and creating a masterpiece. That is awesome. Your love of something, your love of certain things, creating, then using that to create your own thing. Don't, don't hate, create. I don't agree with people that say, you know, it's one thing to get ripped off completely. It's another thing to kind of be inspired by. And what is, what's the saying? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Yeah. And so, and I just, I just like his, his take on this. I didn't steal anything from anybody. I stole from everybody, bitch. Like, you know, like, I think that's great. (laughs) Yeah, you can't all sue me. (laughs) So the last factoid that I found was brought up by our buddy Joe. Uh, Joe brought up the fact that in the original trilogy, maybe the quadrilogy, there were no female androids. The android part was always played by a male antagonist, not female. Again, showing that the... The men were in the monsters, and women were not just, you know, temptresses and succubuses and yeah, stuff like pretty that. Pretty cool. Thanks, Joe. 
And guys, real quick, we know we've missed things. We have not got maybe a fact that you thought was uber cool. Write us, send us an email, comment on the Instagram, comment on the Facebook post, and tell us, hey, there's also this cool fact. Or if we got something off or wrong, shoot us a, a correction. We won't call you out in hatred. We'd love to have, you know, the interaction of things that we may have missed or goofed up on, you know. So feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear about it. And uh, we'll talk about it on the upcoming episode. So... Sweet. Brady All brought right. up a really good idea, and I think this was really great. Sean thought it was great, so I think that the listeners will think it's great, too. After these deep dives of every movie that we do in the deep dives, we're going to read a one-star review. Now, keep in mind, every deep dive that we do, it's probably going to be us loving the, the movie. I think maybe once in a while we might want to switch it up and do like a movie that we were like, this movie's terrible, and do a deep dive of it, so to speak, and then do like mm-hmm. reviews that people like love. <laughs> the shitty movie. I think that'd, that'd be kind of cool too. Yeah. But on this movie, Alien, RottenTomatoes.com. It's got a 97% fresh rating. Incredible. This is where we're getting these one-star reviews right now. It's from RottenTomatoes.com. We might go to Voodoo.com or iTunes store and read the Google Play, whatever, read some of their reviews. I like Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty fun. It categor- It's basically just pulls them all together. So Frank Rich with Time Magazine back on October 22nd, 2010. It is depressing to watch an expensive, crafty movie that never soars beyond its cold desire to score the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes you wonder if he was watching the same movie. Yeah, no doubt, right? Well, Dave Keir or Care from the Chicago Reader said back on June 4th, 2007, one star review, an empty headed horror movie with nothing to recommend it beyond the disco inspired art direction and some handsome, if gimmicky, cinematography. <laughs> beyond the disco inspired art. <laughs> again, did you just watch the same movie I did? <laughs> this review is, bought, is brought to you by Vincent Camby of the New York Times, who's a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes. He wrote it on May 9th, 2005. These things no longer surprise or tantalize us as they once did. In a very short time, science fiction films have developed their own jargon, and that's now become part of the grammar. My goodness, that man is salty. Yeah, like none of that pertains to this movie specifically, but he felt the need to go on to and submit a review for Alien without talking about anything with Amy. <laughs> I just think that, of course, none of these things tantalize us anymore. Well, no, not in, what was it, 2007 when he wrote that thing? Yeah, 2005. 2005. But back in the 70s and the 80s, <laughs> yeah, it tantalized the hell out of a lot of people. Yeah, if you waited yeah. to watch it for the first time in 2005, you've seen a lot of sci-fi since then, bud. Yeah, and considering his picture up here is a black and white photo. I would I would assume that he's probably an older gentleman, curmudgeon, or so he wants to be perceived or perceived. Well, his his uh, his review mm-hmm. is still up there; it's archived in the New York Times, so you can actually read it. Now I've thrown a curveball at you guys because uh, with you know the other podcast, Pixelated Paranormal, there is a paranormal story linked to Alien, and it's not anything kooky like if you pause it at exactly thirty minutes in, you see a man hanging from the rafters. But instead, it's actually an alien encounter story. Mm. So Kodo goes on to say that when he was around 9 or 10 years old while living in the Bronx in New York, he was told one evening that he wasn't allowed to go outside and play with his friends. So he decided that he would just stay inside and watch them from one of the windows in the house. 
so while he stayed inside, he knelt down to watch his friends through a window. He said as he turned around, he noticed a strange creature standing behind him. He describes the being as having a very long, elongated head. He said just as soon as he saw the creature, when it noticed he saw it, it turned around and jumped into one of his blind spots and disappeared. Several years later, he was in his garage meditating when he suddenly saw a bright light shining in the window. After watching the window for five minutes, he chalked it up to his friends or neighbors just shining some lights from the next door house. Later, when he went to ask the neighbors, they told him that they hadn't been shining any lights at all. Then, for about 15 years following, Koda would notice strange rings of black smoke that would appear in the sky above his house, no matter where he'd move. The rings would always appear. Later, when he and his wife had moved to the Philippines, he was working from his home office one night when his wife and the housekeepers started yelling for him to come outside. When he got outside, his wife and the staff said that just before he came outside, a large flying craft had been hovering over the house. It was bigger than Yankee Stadium, so large it blotted out the moon in the sky above. Yafet also says that while filming Alien, there were several parts of the set design that featured strange hieroglyphs and symbols that he recognized, yet didn't know how, but chose not to talk about any of his experiences because he didn't want to ruin or sour his opportunity to be part of the film, because the opportunity itself was huge and also because of how well the script was written. He says that he waited for over 50 years to discuss the events that had plagued his life because he didn't want to seem like he was trying to get extra press for the film Alien or that he was trying to line up attention that he could use to advance himself further in his career. Up until this interview with Vice, he had only ever told his wife, his rabbi, and a psychologist. And now, since he has nothing to gain from telling his story, he finally decided to come forward because he truly believes we are not alone. What a, When was this interview? This was from 2017, I believe, with Vice. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I just I found that kind of towards the end of our uh, our research for this movie, and thought it was kind of interesting that somebody involved in that film would have their own UFO story or alien story, for that matter. A really prominent alien story at that. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, not that this is the paranormal show, but it does maybe give some credence to the fact that he didn't bring this up and they didn't use it for any kind of promotional material either. So, yeah, there you go, a little bonus paranormal story. Well, fellas, I think we're yeah. going to wrap this up. And like we said earlier, if you guys have additions to add to this, new facts, alternative facts, corrections, let us know. And we'd be happy to share that on the following episode as kind of a corrections corner or, you know, letters from the uh, listeners, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, hit us up. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Well, Steve, you're on deck. What might we experience from the next episode? The next episode goes like this. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? That's right. The one and only Scream by Wes Craven. A classic. Ooh. Amazing movie. It's going to be a fun episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. In six months. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully in two weeks. (laughs) We're going to get on a better schedule. Yeah, I think we've kind of uh, balanced out the the recent changes to 
our personal lives, hopefully, and we can get back on track. So, well, that's cool, Steve. That's a more modern film because so far we've hit the uh, 70s and 80s. So that's kind of exciting. Oh, yeah. And now we're probably just going to focus mainly on the first film, correct? Maybe maybe touch a little on the uh, franchise or just the first film? Yeah, just, yeah, just the first Sweet. one. Sounds yeah. good. Cool, cool, tight, tight. All right, well, let's wrap things up with some plugs. Do you guys have anything you would like to plug? Just the Facebook. <laughs> 13, Nightmares, uh, 13 Nightmares page on Facebook. <laughs> Check us out on that. Also, our Instagram, which is where we do all the visual cool. companions for each each episode. Which is at thirteen, like the number one, number three, nightmares pod. Thir- yeah. Yep. There you go. Thirteen nightmares pod. So thirteen nightmares pod. Yep. There you go. Check us out on there. Give us a follow. Uh, and yeah, if you see us on iTunes or any other subscription service with podcasting, uh, if you can leave us a review, do that. Leave us an honest review. That'd be tight. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Reviews help us a lot. Sure. And definitely check out the Facebook group, Wichita Terrifiles, and you should join that. It's a lot of good, like-minded horror fiends, and we have a good time on there. It's all positive, and it's awesome. All right. Brady, got anything you want to plug, sir? Um, You can find me at Brady underscore 13N on Instagram and Brady Farner on Facebook. And that's about my extent of social media. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sean Swope. One word S H A W N S W O P E. And uh, I do a lot of artwork on there, especially horror artwork. So check me out. And speaking of checking out stuff, guys, check out the other shows on the Pixelated Sausage Network. Check out Mark's solo show, Pixelated Sausage. Check out the Attack the Backlog video cast that Mark does where he reviews a lot of different video games stacked up in his backlog. And also, you're probably here because of our other main show, but if you're not and you like weird, spooky stuff, check us out on Pixelated Paranormal. That's our other podcast. We're coming up on 140 episodes here before too long, so it's been a lot of fun doing that as well. And then if you have a beard, if you know a beard, if you want to grow a beard, check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your entire order. And then also, speaking of movies and films, check out our friends over at CD Trade Post on Pawnee and Seneca. Pop in there sometimes, say hi to Leslie and the gang. Very good friends of our show. And uh, we might have something else cooked up in the near future with them as well for an additional episode, so... All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and get out of here. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. Until next time. Until next time, you've been listening to 13 Nightmares. When we last left you, we discussed the return of the Walking Dead, but tonight we're headed into the further. (laughs) (laughs) Return of the Walking Dead? Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That that might go at the end. (laughs) I wanted to say, discussed Trolltled. Trolltled, yeah. (laughs) All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you had a great time maybe learning a few things you didn't know about the old alien. And like I said before, you never know. It sounds like more than ever, we might just be resurrecting 13 Nightmares once again. 
which would be fantastic. Any hoozle, until next time, y'all, please give us a follow on the Pixelated Paranormal social medias. Instagram is at PXL Paranormal. Facebook is the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. And also, please give us a follow on the old YouTubers. On our YouTube channel, we oftentimes will be live streaming the recordings of these episodes. Except for tonight's, of course, because this was done about, I think, three years ago. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate you guys. Don't forget, check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com. If you have a beard, if you know a beard, if you want to grow a beard, and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your entire order. Speaking of movies, if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by see our dear, lovely friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post Pawnee and Seneca. And as always, I'd like to raise my glass and say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And on behalf of Preston, stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.